Father, your word is life. It is true and trustworthy. What you say happens. And Lord, we know that. And Father, we thank you for the, the blessing it is to be able to hear your word read and preached. We prepare our hearts this morning. Open our hearts to hear from you, that you will teach us and encourage us from your word today, and that we will be all the more equipped to live in service for you with our lives. Amen. The Bible reading today is Exodus chapters 1 and 2. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died... But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds among the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and, and and, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. 
She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Uh, how good is it to get into Exodus and the Old Testament, uh, these uh, parts of the Bible that are so rich for us? I'm just going to pray quickly and then we'll dive into the passage today. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God, that you are a rescuing God. Uh, we thank you that we can trust you and we pray that even now by your spirit you might work in each of our minds and our hearts. Please soften us to your word. Our God, we pray that you might um, grow within us a deep and transforming trust that you are the God who can always be relied upon, who keeps your promises and who has done that fully and finally in Christ. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, you might know the phrase, so over-promise and under-deliver. Uh, it, uh, it can be actually quite funny. A number of years ago, there was a segment on a TV show called Product versus Pack Shot. Uh, I enjoyed this segment. What they do is they take an actual product and they place it next to the picture on the packet of that product and kind of show the difference between the two. Uh, so, so some of them were so disappointing. Here's a, 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 a curry that, you, you know, if you're expecting what's on top, you, you're going to be disappointed, right? Or, or this next one, um, you think you're getting St. Nick and you get a rabbit. That's a bit freaky. Uh, but no, what's really freaky is the next one. This is my personal favourite, freaky ice cream. 
That's going to, uh, let's move on from that. That's going to give us nightmares. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's funny uh, when uh, you overpromise and underdeliver. Often it's deeply disappointing, though, isn't it? Um, if not devastating, when people overpromise and underdeliver, or when they give up entirely on their promises. I mean, you think of the kind of stereotype of the politician on the campaign trail promising the world. But there's more personal breaks in trust, aren't there, uh, that cause us deep pain uh, from the massive ones like unfaithfulness in marriage, but right down to every, small everyday ones like saying you'll do something and not following through on it. Over-promising and under-delivering damages our relationships, doesn't it? But what about our relationship with God? This is a really important question. At the end of the day, it's the question, can you trust God? Really? Can you, re- can you rest in, rely on completely what he says? And maybe you're not yet a Christian uh, and you're joining us today. It's so good you're here. Uh, but maybe you're considering what being a Christian means. And this is a big question for you too. When Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest, Can you trust him, really? Can you do that with Jesus? It's a big question. So as um, Shannon mentioned, we're starting this series that's going to take us all through this term in this wonderful Old Testament book of Exodus. Uh, And this is one of the big questions driving the whole book, actually, the whole book of Exodus. Um, Has God (laughs) over-promised? Has he over-promised? And can he deliver? Is he going to under-deliver on his promise? Uh, God had made massive promises. Uh, You see that in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which we have looked at before. But if you remember, he made amazing promises. Exodus flows straight out of Genesis um, from that first book. And Genesis is all about God's promise. Uh, God made the world a place of life and peace, but the first humans rejected him and his good rule, and their fall brought death and chaos into God's good world. At that point, God could have rightly given up on his world, could rightly judged it and finished it, but he didn't. He chose one man, Abraham, and gave him incredible promises. He made a covenant with him. A covenant is in the Bible is a word for a special relationship based in binding promises. Uh, you can read about this covenant back in Genesis 12 and 15. But um, a summary of it is on the screen there. God promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation, that he would give him a land to live in, this nation a land to live in, and that through them his blessing would go to the whole earth. He would give his blessing to the whole earth. He was go- See what's going on there. He's actually, what he's basically saying is he's going to undo that curse of the fall that the first humans plunged humanity into. He's going to bring life and peace in place of curse and death. Uh, The rest of Genesis tells how God was faithful to his promise uh, to Abraham and his family. He's faithful to them despite even their sin and their unfaithfulness. I mean, Abraham's family turns out to be seriously dysfunctional. Um, So you probably know the story. Um, His great-grandsons sell one of their brothers, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt 
Um, and it's a, it's a really uh, great uh, story of God's faithfulness in humanity's unfaithfulness. Uh, but God uses this guy who gets sold into Egypt called Joseph. He, God uses him to save Abraham's family. And they, it's a long winding story, but they all end up moving to Egypt to escape a massive famine. And so that's kind of the backstory to Exodus, where we're up to today. Um, the family of God's promise is now living in Egypt, away from the land God had promised them, and not yet a great nation. Uh, so the, the last verses of Genesis, you can flick there if you've got your Bible. The last verses, Joseph actually tells um, the family not to bury him in Egypt. He gives these instructions, don't bury me here, take my bones with you when God takes you back to the land that he has promised. It's like this act of faith. He knows God's promise isn't done yet. And so then we get to Exodus, this wonderful story, this book. Uh, and the opening verses of Exodus, it seems like this fulfillment of God's promise goes into overdrive. So uh, there were 70 who came into Egypt originally with Joseph and, and the rest of the family. But in verse 7, we read this. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And the language you can see in that verse, it's supposed to remind us of the very first chapter of the Bible. And the creation of the whole world. When God created mankind, he gave them a purpose to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it. And you can see the direct links here, right, what's happening to his people in um, Egypt. Uh, we're meant to see God's, God's doing something. He's undoing the fall. He's bringing the blessing of his grace instead of the curse of our sin. He's bringing about his promise to Abraham's family. But straight away, there's this massive problem um, in Exodus. And we had it read to us before. But verse 8, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. So this new king, he looks at Abraham's family, now kind of multiplying like rabbits, you know, like they're a huge people group, uh, multiplying at a actually a miraculous rate. And he's threatened by them, right? He's intent on, he sees them as a threat. He's intent on squashing this threat. So the first thing he does is he says, right, this, well, now we have a convenient slave labor force. So he enslaves this people group. He turns them all into slaves, thinking that that would suppress them or at least stop them from breeding so quickly. But does it work? Absolutely not. In fact, in verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Uh, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. See so what's going on here? Pharaoh is doing his best to squash this threat. And the more he tries to do that, the more they grow. Um, so he steps things up a gear. He comes up with this evil plan, right? It's a, it's a wicked, a horrible plan. Uh, he, he tells the Hebrew midwives to kill all the baby boys that were born. Uh, presumably the Hebrew um, girls that were born could be more easily assimilated into the Egyptian... He's, he's trying to wipe out this group, right? He's trying to... It's a terrible thing he asks the midwives to do. 
And the, don't you love these midwives? <laughs> I think in many ways they are actually the heroes of this, one of the heroes of the story. Two, in many ways, in the Egyptian society, two lowly women with very little power who defy the un, seemingly unstoppable force of the greatest king in the world. <laughs> Uh, just on a side note, apparently, some, you might, uh, apparently Friday was International Day of the Midwives, so this is good timing. Yeah. Um, but do you notice who we're given the names of these midwives in verse 15? Shifra and Pua. And that's actually a really significant thing. It's an important thing. Only a handful of characters in Exodus, are, we're told their names. We don't even know the Pharaoh's name. Um, we're not even sure which Pharaoh he was. He's just called Pharaoh, which is like a title. But we, we are given the names of these two unlikely heroes. And just in, in that, we're sort of given a bit of a hint that these two are actually the great ones in God's sights in this story, not the Pharaoh. And doesn't that just fit the normal pattern of how God works in the world? Um, I mean, we saw this in 1 Corinthians, right? God chose... The foolish things of this world to shame the wise he chose the weak things the despised things to shame the strong uh, but these midwives defy the power of Pharaoh they refuse to obey his evil command to kill the baby boys and they do that because in verse 17 did you pick that up as we read it why do they do that because they fear God they fear God Everything around them was telling them to fear Pharaoh. He was the one with power over life and death in Egypt. I mean, can, can you just imagine how much pressure was on these two midwives? Now, probably the kind of head midwives over a team, but, but because there's so many, unless they were kind of working nonstop, uh, but that's, they're probably the head midwives. But can you imagine the pressure on them? But they know that they serve a far greater king. They fear the living Lord of the universe. They fear the one who gives life. And they know that the killing of innocent life, is, of helpless babies, is abhorrent to him. So they entrust themselves to God. And they don't do it. No matter what pressure Pharaoh puts them under. And again, do you see this? Not only does God's plan not get stopped, it sort of keeps going gangbusters. In verse 20, it increased, the people increased and became even more numerous. Uh, these midwives, Shifra and Pua, it's worth saying their names because uh, that's an important thing that the Bible gives us. They're incredible examples, aren't they, for us? And I reckon it's helpful just to pause and reflect at this moment do you fear God like these two wonderful women? Or are you more afraid of the pharaohs of this age? Uh, like Shifra and Pua, will you entrust yourself to God to line yourself up with him and his purposes and his promise, even when there is pressure on you from outside to deny him and his purposes and his word. They are a great example. Uh, 
The Bible's clear that the normal pattern for Christians is actually to be the best citizens of whatever sort of culture or country we're in uh, because we belong to Christ, so we can happily obey the governing authorities, we can not insist on our own rights, we can live humble and quiet lives seeking the good of those around us. But there is an exception that the Bible gives us to that. It's when we're ordered by a human being to disobey the living God of the universe. You see it here in Exodus, you see it in places like Daniel in the Old Testament, you see it when the Apostle Peter is told to stop talking about Jesus in Acts 5. That's the moment that you say we must obey God rather than human beings. So this, the, these women of faith, Shifra and Puah, they entrust themselves to their God of covenant promise. And God blesses them for it. He blesses them for it. Okay, um, so that's chapter one. Let's shift into chapter two. God is not just a God of covenant promise. He gave those amazing promises. But because of that, because he had made these incredible promises, he's also a God who rescues. He's a rescuing God. So Pharaoh ramps up things even more. The last verse of chapter one, verse 22, um, he goes into the next phase of his attempt at genocide. That's basically what it is, right? Uh, verse 22, Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born. So see what is going on. Instead of just the midwives, he's rallying the Egyptians. Um, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. So he's letting loose his Egyptian citizens to conduct this atrocity. Um, you know, it would, have been a, it would have been just terrifying a situation to live in, right? It's hard for us to imagine the horror that um, the Hebrew people would have gone through. Imagine trying to hide your pregnancy and your, the birth of your child, hiding your baby boy from the Egyptian death squads kind of roaming around. But into this horrific situation... Uh, this is where we meet the one who's going to become really the main character, apart from God himself, the main character of this book, of Exodus, uh, the one who would become Israel's rescuer. We're going to meet Moses. Except before Moses could be the rescuer, he had to be rescued himself. He needed rescuing. And again, uh, it, under, it, it is the daughters of Israel who, under God, are the heroes of this story. Uh, so Moses' mum hides him away, but when he gets too big and loud to hide away, she makes a basket for him, uh, covers it in tar and pitch and puts it in the river. Do you notice the kind of little bit of irony here? She's actually doing what Pharaoh has told people to do. Uh, she's putting her boy into the river. But there's also a really deep significance to what she's doing and what's going on here. Uh, that word for basket, that, um, the basket that she's made, it's the same word in Hebrew for ark, as in uh, Noah's ark. The only other time it's used in the Old Testament is to talk about Noah's ark. Also, incidentally, covered in pitch, uh, made waterproof. And that's an intentional thing that we're supposed to see here. We're, we're meant to see Moses, Moses' mother is making like a mini ark, and in doing so, she is placing her precious baby boy into the hands of God. She's entrusting that he would bring rescue out of the waters, just like with Noah. She, she knew God was the God who saves his people, the God who rescues, 
And even though she couldn't see what was happening, she entrusts her boy to her saving God. What a moment that is, isn't it? Heart-wrenching moment. And who could have predicted what comes next? <laughs> no one could predict this, right? Uh, not only does this baby get rescued, he gets saved by the daughter of the very king who's trying to kill him. Uh, and, and, and because of his sister's ingenuity, his mother gets him back after all uh, and gets paid for it by Pharaoh's own daughter. Oh, you just, isn't it just remarkable? You just see how unstoppable God's plan is. He is using the wicked plan of his enemy against his enemy. Not only does this Hebrew boy get rescued, he ends up being raised through childhood by his own mother, getting, who's getting paid for it, before going into Pharaoh's household as, one of his, as his adopted grandson, basically. Uh, and this would be the one. This one, at the heart of Pharaoh's household, would end up being the one who God would use to save his people from their slavery to Pharaoh. His covenant promise is unstoppable. No one can defeat him. Not the most powerful person in the world, Pharaoh. And, and in, what we're meant to see here is all Pharaoh's attempts to stop what God's doing end up just advancing <laughs> God's plan instead of putting the brakes on it. So the one who had an unexpected rescue uh, in the rest of chapter 2 then becomes this unexpected rescuer. Um, but his first attempts at rescue don't go too well. So from verse 11, uh, you see he's, um, he's grown up now and he's about 40 years old. Uh, and he sees a Hebrew man being beaten by an Egyptian. So Moses uh, knows that, we're meant to see here, Moses knows that despite being raised in Pharaoh's household, he actually does belong to this people of promise, to the Hebrew people. And he strikes this Egyptian down and kills him as he does so. And you, you, we read the story. Once he gets found out, um, he ends up being rejected by his own people. They don't want... Uh, they, they don't want trouble of him being around. And Pharaoh gets enraged, tries to kill him. So Moses legs it to a place called Midian. He flees to this place called Midian. And once he's there, so that's his sort of first attempt at a rescue. <laughs> Doesn't go too well. Uh, oh, he did rescue the original guy. But w once he's in Midian, he, there's another rescue on the horizon. Uh, this time, some young women come to a well. Uh, there's lots of wells and meetings at wells in the Bible, which is really interesting. But these young women come to the well, and one of whom he ends up marrying and having kids with, which we read earlier. But there's lots, of, lots in there. But by the end of the chapter, you get the sense that Moses is a man torn between different worlds. Um, he even calls his son Gershom, which um, in verse 22, which kind of sounds like the Hebrew word for foreigner, and, he's, and Moses says, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So his son and the name of his son is like this constant reminder that he's out of place. There's something not right here. Not only is he a foreigner in Midian, even in Egypt he was a foreigner, and his people are still there enslaved. And the question is raised at the end of the chapter, what next? I mean, is Moses just going to stay in Midian, leave his days out? Farming, um, 
Will the people of God's covenant promise stay in slavery in Egypt? In other words, did God overpromise and underdeliver? Is that what's going to happen? Well, all through these couple of chapters, the focus has been on the actions and plans of people, right? Some of them have been wonderful, noble, heroic. Some of them have been wicked and ruthless. But it's at the last couple of verses of chapter 2 that God himself steps into view. And you find out, actually, he's actually been behind the scenes the whole way through. But now we really see who's actually in control. Verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Those verses are kind of setting us up for everything that's about to happen, what's about to come. God is going to take center stage uh, in this story, and we'll we'll see that much more next week, so come back then. Um, But notice how God hears and looks on his people and is concerned about them. He remembers his covenant not like, not like you remember something that you've forgotten, like where you dropped your car keys or something. That's not the remembering in mind here. It's he's bringing, putting into action his covenant. He's bringing it to the forefront, his covenant with Abraham. Everything that's going to come as we look through Exodus is driven by this, by God's sovereign care of his people and his faithfulness to his promise. And friends, what these chapters are impressing on us in really rich ways is that God never, never overpromises. He never overpromises. He always delivers. Even in the face of extreme opposition through intense hardship, even when everything seems dark, He is at work. And you can trust him. You can trust him. And not only that, he uses unexpected means. He uses the lowly and the weak to bring about his plans, to bring to nothing the strong and the proud. Um, For God's people who are in slavery in Egypt, there was this gap between what God had promised and their reality, right? What they were experiencing every day. And home groups sort of looked at this, hopefully, in the week. But as the New Testament reflects on this, and we're told in the letter of the, uh, to the Hebrews in chapter 11 that Moses trusted God. He refused the riches of Egypt. He aligned himself with God's people because he was looking ahead to his reward. He was looking ahead to what God would do. He was living for that more than for what was going on today more than for the fleeting pleasures of today. And that looking ahead to what God would do, it really drives actually the whole story of the Old Testament. God was working out his promise as he led his people out of Egypt, as he took them into the promised land, as he raised up judges and kings, even as hundreds of years later he sent the people into exile because of their sin. 
he remains steadfastly committed to his promise until finally he sent the ultimate rescuer, the true fulfillment of his covenant promises. Uh, there's this fascinating scene in the Gospels where Jesus takes some of his disciples up a mountain and there's this blinding light, this glorious splendor. He meets with two men who turn out to be, one of whom turns out to be Moses, uh, and the other is Elijah, these characters from the Old, these, these, these people from the Old Testament. And together, Moses and Elijah kind of represent the purposes and plans of God that we see played out across the Old Testament. And Luke tells us this in verse 31 of uh, chapter 9. They spoke about his departure, that is Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, maybe if you've got your own Bible there, you'll see a little footnote. But that word departure, it's the same word for the Greek title of this book, for Exodus. It's the word Exodus. And it's a deliberate link. The true and better rescuer, Jesus, talks with this first rescuer, Moses, about the true and better exodus he was about to accomplish. Except this time the enemy wasn't a physical king, but the ultimate enemy, the world's great enemy, Satan. Uh, the slavery he was about to bring rescue from wasn't, the lit wasn't literal chains, but our spiritual chains of sin and death. This rescue would lead his true people, the true children of Abraham, who from every tribe and nation would put their faith in him. He would lead them to their true and eternal promised land. See what's going on. When Mo, what Moses and Elijah looked forward to, Jesus was about to gloriously, incredibly, wonderfully bring fulfillment to. And that means we now look back on that great reality. But we also look forward too, don't we, uh, to the complete outworking of what Jesus accomplished at that moment of Jesus' kingdom. So in a way, like Moses, there's also a gap for us too, right, between what God has promised and our present reality. Even though we have seen that wonderful fulfillment in Christ, we've been rescued, but we still wait for his new creation. And so for us today, God's, God's word is still the same, isn't it? In that gap between what God has promised and what you are experiencing day to day, will you entrust yourself? Rest in, give yourself to this promising and rescuing God. He never overpromises. He never underdelivers. His purpose is unstoppable. And because of Jesus, you can have certainty that Satan's power, even though it might seem terrifying to you, has been utterly, once and for all, crushed and will be brought to nothing when Jesus returns. So you don't have to live in fear. You can have certainty that your sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Your sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and you bear it no more.
praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. You can have certainty that, you, that God is working his purposes out. He is growing his people, despite whatever opposition comes, whatever forces the little pharaohs of our world bring against him, even that he uses unexpected, weak, frail, ordinary people like you and me in that amazing plan. So we're going to, in a moment, we're going to move to share in the Lord's Supper together. And let's use that as an opportunity to remember, receive, take into our hearts again that great, true exodus, one for us by our great, true rescuer, by Jesus. And to remember, to take into ourselves, to receive in our hearts the great confidence that we can have in the unstoppable promise of our sovereign and loving God. Let's pray. Oh God, there's so many things in these chapters that seem to threaten your purpose and your plans. We thank you for the insight here that nothing can stop what you have promised. You never underdeliver, you never overpromise, and your promises are so wonderful. Give us faith, O Lord, to receive your word today, to take it into our hearts and to live in its light. In Jesus' name, amen.